0: shepherd bible church sermon podcast our mission at good shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe grow and hope in jesus one of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word we believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church our desire is to preach christ crucified for you which means we hope that jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us, and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. I'll go ahead and read. We're going to be in verses one through five. Um, excuse me, one through six, and then we'll um, discuss it tonight. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Fair plug for next week. That last verse, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Jud next week is going to cover the beginnings of that conversation, but we're kind of going to leave that verse, even though it's part of this section here and part of the sequence of questioning here, we're going to leave that little chunk, Jud's going to cover that. So there you go, Judd. throw you a bone, I'll even give you an extra verse, verse six, you can have it. All right, but it begins this conversation where he's going to bring in Abraham as an example of his point that he's trying to prove. But tonight we'll really look at verses one through five of chapter three. As I was thinking about this passage, I was just overwhelmed with this thought and this reality. I've shared it before here, but I want to dive a little bit deeper into it tonight. Most Christians that I know don't really have a justification issue. In our small group, even this week, our community group this week, that even that very line even came out in our discussion. I don't know, this is a direct quote, I don't know if I have a justification issue. I'm not doubting God's justification of me by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. Most of us don't have a struggle when it comes to getting into the faith that way. Um, most people that I know are willing to raise their hand and say, yeah, in order for me to get to heaven, I'm going to need a lot A lot of Jesus, and none of us have, uh, very few of us, very few of us, have problems with saying, oh, I need 100% Jesus to get into Christianity. All of us would raise our hand and say, yeah, to get in, I don't, I haven't met the standard. I don't have enough righteousness on my account by my own doings. I can't get in by my own works. Can't do it. Most of us would say, just absolutely raise your hand. No, that's me. That's me. But I do think the majority of Christians, including myself, I think we do have a sanctification issue. And what I mean by that is, though, I don't think most of us are sweating whether or not we need Jesus to get us into heaven or to get us converted into the Christian faith. But I do think that a lot of us struggle with, can I keep myself in the faith? Am I doing enough to keep myself in the faith, to keep myself justified? We struggle, especially on a very functional level, in day-to-day moments, in week-to-week moments, where the embarrassing or the downright sinful or guilty feelings come into our hearts. We have a feeling that somehow, on the basis of what we have done, that we have somehow given up ground on justification by virtue of our sanctification or our lack thereof. And in one sense, I would actually argue that actually it is a justification issue, but it just is always seen in the mode of our sanctification, our growth in the Christian life. We somehow feel that maybe if I am not growing enough or growing to the extent that I feel like I need to, or maybe I take so many steps backwards that certainly I have lost all sense of rightness with God. And in that sense, I do think there are so many Christians who have a sanctification issue that unseats the feeling or the sense of their justification. Going back to early on in our study, this is that old Martin Luther phrase, in actual living, however, it is very hard to believe that by grace alone we have peace with God. We, to get us in, I mean, like we remember there sitting there in our in our seat. Many of us walked an aisle many times, right? Many, uh, I did. I walked an aisle many times. And I knew within my own self to get right with God in the first place, I would need 100% Jesus because I'm not getting it. But I think the reason I walked the aisle so many times is because I've learned that my sanctification or my lack of sanctification was somehow out up, uh, at work to uproot this sense of justification in my heart. Somewhere along the lines, we believe that, yes, justification somehow is all about Jesus, but then your sanctification somehow is now all about you. Jesus gets you in, but all of a sudden your sanctification, now God wants you to keep you in. I meet Christians all the time who that's the struggle. And so what's the answer? What's the solution? I don't know if you've been there. I remember doing this a million times as a teenager, praying, Lord, I'm serious this time. I mean it this time. I am 100% committed to, to Jesus. Sign me up for discipleship. I will pick up my cross and follow you, and it starts tonight. I prayed that last night. Exact same prayer over and over and over. In the middle of that was a whole dose of sin and guilty feelings because according to the performance of the law, whatever that law looked like in my life, I knew I wasn't meeting the standard. I did a lot of digging this week on personal uh, confessions related to this uh, relationship between justification and sanctification. So I did a little bit of digging, and I found what's probably uh, in our, our closest uh, confession that we, would, that we would confess here. This is the 1689 London Baptist Confession. It says this, They who are united to Christ effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, that's justification, are also further sanctified really and personally through the exact same virtue. I'll read it again. They who are united to Christ, effectually called, regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection are also further sanctified really and personally through the exact same virtue. We are justified by grace through faith. And again, how are you going to receive the spirit? None of us are going to say anything short of 100% Jesus. You want to be regenerated? You want to have a new heart? You want to have a brand new eternal life? You want something dead to become alive? You need Jesus for that work. The 1689 London Baptist Confession says, if you want to be sanctified, it happens the exact same way. Through faith in Christ. Faith in Christ, trusting in Christ's miraculous ability is the exact same way that you are justified. It's the exact same mechanism. This is the reality for us tonight, that I want us to observe. I want us to see this right from Paul's letter here to the Galatians, because this is going to get brought to the forefront. Again, I don't think the Galatians actually really struggled with matters of justification. I think Peter was struggling with a matter of sanctification that did uproot his sense of justification. It's a big deal. So I want us to see, first of all, that we are justified through faith in Christ. We are justified through faith in Christ. I've entitled this sermon, Seeing, or Hearing, rather, is Believing. Seeing is Believing. If we are justified and sanctified the exact same way through faith in Christ, how do we do that? Well, seeing is Believing. And actually, really, through seeing, we use our ears. Hearing is Believing. Paul wants us to see that we are justified through faith in Christ. So Paul's going to put in front of us the necessity of preaching Christ crucified. He does start off. He gets a little feisty again. Okay, we had toned it down maybe just a little bit towards the end of chapter two. It got a little theological. Now Paul's getting a little feisty again and goes, makes a little personal attack here. Oh, foolish Galatians. That probably doesn't sound as strong as it might in the New Testament. The calling somebody a fool back in that day is pretty strong. We don't, we don't tend to b- blush at that. They would have blushed at being called fools or foolish. You remember from Psalm 14, verse 1, The fool has said in his heart, that there is no God. These were This is a direct attack on their belief, their functional belief in a deity, in God, in monotheism, which for a Jew would have been unheard of. Of course we're monotheists. Of course we believe in Yahweh. We have this one God. Paul's calling him out and saying, you don't actually believe there's one God on the ground of your life, you foolish Galatians. You've given him up. You foolish Galatians. He doesn't just say that in verse 1. He actually says that in verse 3 again. You're acting foolishly. This is a direct name call. This is not something we would encourage our kids to do, but Paul's going right for the heart here to listen to my tone. Listen in. You're acting like the pagans act. You're acting like a fool. You're acting like somebody who has basically on a functional level said there is no God. You have no theology. You've given him up. More than that, you've been put in a spell. Who has bewitched you? Who has put a spell on you? Who's put the rebellionist witchcraft magic on you? Who's put that on you? This would would be like, I mean, the Jews would have had no space for this kind of witchcraft language. They would find it very offensive that Paul would even talk about them in terms of uh, a spell or magic or some other secretive kind of uh, uh, enchantment here. This is a, what kind of spell are you under? My friends, it's the spell of legalism. And isn't it a spell? It's a delusional spell, isn't it? Very rarely, very rarely do we have in our own ability as just natural human beings, the ability to sniff out our own legalistic tendencies, don't we? It is extremely rare. It is very rarely self-discovered. We stumble upon it. The accusation of legalism kind of sneak, sneak attacks us always. We're never prepared for the accusation of legalism. It always kind of comes to an affront to who we are, that you would call us a legalist. We kind of have to be shaken, shaken right out of the spell of you're a legalist. You're a natural-born legalist. You constantly are looking at what you do. No, I don't. You see it? Do you hear it? Yes, you do. It's a spell. Let it be known. If you are a listening Christian, if you are trying to hear Paul's words, if you're trying to hear his words of, oh, foolish person, you would have this awareness that somebody could come to you and look at you square in the eyes and say, you're being foolish, and you wouldn't believe him. There's enough deceitfulness of your own heart, but also there's enough power in religion to know that you could look at somebody square in the eyes and say, you're acting like a fool and they wouldn't believe you. Is that powerful of a spell? Can Can I encourage you? Can I encourage you as a Christian? Whenever somebody accuses you of legalism, just have a heart to be like, yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, that makes sense in me. It's a spell. It's an enchantment that we're easily put under. It's a foolish thing, and aren't we natural-born fools? Haven't we lived a consistent life of foolishness to make it possible for this charge to exist? Let's not be so offended if somebody comes to us and says, I sniff legality in you. I sniff a hint of life by do in you. It shouldn't be that offensive. That's how we were naturally born. That's the operation apart from Christ. And wouldn't you be willing to say, oftentimes I live apart from the realities of Christ? It's not natural to myself to be treated by grace and grace only. I'm constantly thinking about what I have to do. So the charge of legalism shouldn't be out of left field. It should be something I'm constantly, even in my own soul, working to defend my heart against if it's a spell that feels almost indefensible, my friends, we should watch where the spell comes from. We should be watchful of where the spell naturally comes from. You wouldn't find anybody just nonchalantly walking past a witch's house. And yet we as Christians frequent the house of legalism. We should watch our hearts. And it shouldn't be that big of a stretch for somebody to come to us and say, I sniff legality in in your life. Yeah, it's probably true. In fact, I'm like trying to figure out exactly where that exists. I'm just assuming it does exist in my life. It's so hard to live my life dependent on nothing else except the grace of Jesus. Paul's trying to shock the system. I wonder if you're listening. Peter himself was put under a mighty spell. Again, just the week previous, he had no problem acting with the Galatians, interacting with the Galatians, and he was put under a mighty spell where Paul had to confront him to his face. It was that, uh, it was that disclarifying for him. Paul says, the cure to your spell is to look at what was preached, to look at what I preached to you. Again, this is that same message that Paul says, if anybody else is preaching to you a different message, let that person be accursed. I'm preaching to you the real thing. What did he preach? Verse 1, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now the reality is the Galatian people more than likely actually never witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. We have no record of actually anybody in the Galatian church actually present at Christ's crucifixion in his resurrection or ascension. So Paul is actually making this absurd charge. It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. You can imagine them looking at me like, we weren't, hey, 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 we, we weren't there. No, 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 no. Wrong, wrong people. Wrong people. Paul says, no, 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 you saw him. How do I know? Verse two, let me ask you this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You've heard him. You've heard him preach. You've heard me preach to you. And so in hearing what you've heard, you can't unsee what you've seen. I preached to you a very clear gospel. I put in front of your earballs a beautiful picture of a crucified Jesus. I painted on the canvas of your heart the realities of Christ for you. I preach that message to you, and you have seen with the eyes of your heart the realities of the gospel, and you cannot take back what you have seen. It was before your eyes. You've seen him. Jesus was publicly lifted up for you. To me, this goes back to uh, when the Jews were roaming around the, 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 ex, uh, the, the wilderness and Moses lifts up a serpent, a serpent uh, on a staff, this golden serpent, that would save them from the poison of, the, of God's judgment. And all of a sudden, Moses says, look on him. If you just look on him, you will be saved. P- Paul is clearly saying, I have raised him up for you. Look on him. Did you not receive life From your judgment, just by merely looking at him, you have seen him with your eyes. This is exactly what preaching is. Preaching is Christ crucified. This is why Paul said, I knew nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Him I proclaimed. Warning, teaching everybody in him. Because in the reality of Christ crucified, we see both the realities of God's standard in His law and the realities of His mercy, of this this justice satisfied in the gospel. We see both law and gospel through Christ crucified kind of preaching. I desire more than anything else as a pastor to do this and do this only. If the only message you hear me say every single week sounds like this, quote, Jesus, for you, end quote, to me, that is sufficient for the job of preaching. For what other power is there other than that? For what other ability is there for God to raise dead than the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners? Answer, none. None if I merely preach to you seven steps on how to get better at being a husband, or here are four ways to stop sinning, my friend, I am only pushing you back on the realities of your legality. I'm pushing you back under the spell of what you have to do to save your life. The only thing that saves beyond the grave from hell to heaven, from death to life, is the preaching of somebody else in your place, both on a cross and in an empty tomb. The only thing worth preaching is Christ crucified, risen again for you. I'm not really interested in giving you a bunch of steps on how to make your life better and then pushing you back on yourself saying, so how are you doing this week? Because if you're going to answer honestly, if you're going to answer according to the law of God, you'd have to be able to say, I'm not doing it. Do you have any other hope? I'm not doing great, pastor. I might be handling things well on the outside, but I got things on the inside that I can't lift. The only thing that matters, that saves from death to life, from sinner to saint, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is saying. want to be free from the spell, look back at what I've preached to you. We're justified by by faith in Christ, and there's an absolute necessity to be reminded of this kind of preaching. Why? Look what he says. He's just gotten off of what Christ crucified is, not not might be, but categorically, (laughs) objectively is in chapter 2, verse 19 through 20. Why is Christ crucified for you so Necessary every single week. Because, verse 19, through the law I died to the law so that I might live in relation to God, that I might have eternal life before the face of God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who now lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in my flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Why? Because he loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, I do not nullify or set aside or even limit in any way the grace of God. Why? Because if righteousness were through me and what I could do, then Christ died for no purpose. He didn't die for just no purpose. He died for a singular purpose that I might have righteousness and so that the righteousness of the living Christ might abide in me now as I live in my flesh. But if you're asking, why is the preaching of Christ so necessary? It's because of that reality right there. Objectively, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And so now this Christ who lives in you is now operative on account of mere faith. It's vitally, objectively important for you to be connected to your union with Christ on the basis of faith. And certainly not with any merit mixed in. That's the only power of transformation in the Christian life. I mentioned, I'll mentioned, i keep mentioning this, by the way, a little, little segue. The reason I'm mentioning this is because actually this is extremely helpful. I'll encourage you to, to do this. Uh, Martin Luther uh, wrote Heidelberg Disputations. There's 28 arguments back and forth that he had with the church as he was forming this, this, uh, this theological distinction that we've talked about between God's law and his gospel. Martin Luther started diagnosing this reality in the scriptures and seeing it all over the place and said that this distinction is critically helpful in the life of the church. He actually said you can't be a proper theologian unless you understand the realities or the distinction between God's law what he demands versus his gospel that is what he gives. He demands perfection, but what God demands he freely gives to you in the person of Jesus Christ, okay? This started being formulated in the what's called the Heidelberg disputation, okay? It's also the city I was born in, so I have a little bit of a connection there, a little proud moment. That's right, it happened in Heidelberg. But this theological distinction began to unpack itself, okay? And so he laid out these little tenets, and so this is what uh, Heidelberg Disputations 16 through 18 are all about. I'm going to read 16, I'm going to read 18, and then I'll go back and I'll summarize in verse 17, because I think Martin Luther got it out, got it, got them out of order, but it doesn't matter. I'll tell him when I get to heaven. Number 16, the person who believes that he can obtain grace by doing what is in him adds sin to sin so that he becomes doubly guilty. That's the reality of God's law. You want to try to do what you can do to get to heaven. Actually, what you're going to do is find that there's increased sin. Not only were you unrighteous, now add double. You are now self-righteous. Double whammy. See that? Okay, verse, uh, not verse 18. Number 18. It is certain that a man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. It's the reality of what the law God is intending to do in our hearts. The law brings death. The law brings condemnation. The law is accusation. Paul says the law is a ministry of condemnation. That's what it is there to do. But does that leave us in despair? No. Look at number 17. Nor does speaking in this manner give cause for despair, but for arousing the desire to humble oneself and seek the grace of Christ. The law drives us to despair, but it doesn't leave us there. It leaves us longing for a word outside of ourselves. And my friends, that's the realities of the gospel. This is exactly what Paul was trying to harmonize here for us. As we said last week, you don't start with the law, then go to the gospel, and then go back to what you have to do in order to keep yourself in. You just stick with the realities of the gospel, for there and only there is the power to actually transform the heart, and therefore the attitudes and actions. It starts at the heart. The gospel is the only thing that can transform the heart. Therefore, there's no reason to despair. If the law has done its job, it is silence, it is done with, then we stick with the gospel. And we see this in the cross of Christ, isn't it? We look at the cross of Christ and we see our sin there. And it's done. It doesn't, it, our sin doesn't come back to life. It is finished at the cross, Jesus said. It's not coming back to haunt us. It's not coming back again to attack us. It's not coming back again to accuse us. The law was silenced at the death of Jesus. So there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why? For the law of the Spirit of life or the operation of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. It has silenced those words. So now all we have is life. All we have is resurrection. All we have is gospel. All we have is grace. Yes, it causes us to despair of our own abilities, but the law doesn't leave us to despair. It leaves us with the gospel, which gladdens our heart, which is the good news of Jesus. It's beautiful. This is the only way we're justified. It's the only way we're set right before God, and praise God, we have justification, don't we? What God does through preaching actually demonstrates this new operation. Okay, what I'm trying to do in preaching, I'll tell you my, I'll tell you my secret sauce every week. What I'm trying to do every week, I'm trying to do what God does to us through the law. I'm trying to kill you. Through the gospel, I'm trying to make you alive. Now again, I can't do that. Okay. It would be crazy if I did, speaking of putting you under a spell or magic stuff. If I could do that, that would be one thing. I'm here called to preach God's word. It's all I'm called to do. And God's word does two things. It kills and it makes alive. Through the law, it condemns. And through the gospel, it awakens. It resurrects. That's what I'm doing through every portion of scripture. That's what I'm doing. So I'm trying to highlight where you failed, and I'm trying to highlight where Jesus succeeded for you. Every single week. I'm trying to help you understand God's demands, and I'm helping you understand Jesus' deliverance. Every week. Same thing. And the preaching, this kind of preaching, actually demonstrates the new operation that God desires for us. This new kind of life, not by law, not merely by what you can do. I'm not going to push you back onto yourself to say, all right, now, hey, this week, I want to see at least nine out of those 10 steps, all right? Then I'll feel really good as a pastor. Then I'll make it and we'll make it and we'll be a great church. Nope. I'm going to pin it all on the promises of Jesus. If we're going to be any sort of anything in this community, it's because Jesus said so and because Jesus' promise is going to make it happen. And how is he going to make it happen? Through mere faith and trusting his ability to do it for us. Now, again as we talked about last week. Does that have a million implications? Yeah, a million implications. We can talk about implications all we want. But I'm not going to put the burden back on our hearts to say if we don't do it, maybe we're not justified. Maybe we're not a good church. Maybe Jesus isn't strong enough anyway. No, I'm going to put on the promises of Jesus and let him work from there. The Spirit came regardless of your law-keeping. This is exactly what he says in verse 2. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by simply hearing with faith? How did you receive this Spirit? The Spirit came regardless of your law-keeping. Boom, that's justification. But also he's going to go on in verse 3 through 6 to say your performance cannot determine the way the Spirit stays. Your ability to do what he asks you to do or perform cannot undermine the realities of the Spirit anyway either. And this is what Paul wants to say too. We're justified through faith in the gospel, but also we're, we're sanctified the exact same way. And so if we needed 100% Jesus preached to us through his crucifixion and his resurrection to get in, then, my friends, to stay in, we keep looking at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Verse number three. Are you so foolish? Are you this kind of dumb? If I was translating, this is kind of how I would say it. Are you this kind of dumb? Where having begun by the Spirit, now God wants you to be perfected by what you can do? God's going to hand you the ball and say, now finish it. I have finished some, but you finish all of it. I've punched 99 yards down the field. You get one. Doesn't work. You know, see the Buckeye game yesterday? Still not possible to get one yard, one yard. Hand it to me, I promise you I can do it. Give it to me. I'll make sure it happens. okay? In the Christian life, not so easy, my friend. We are sanctified the exact same way. Having begun by the Spirit, and I think this is our problem, isn't it? None of us have a justification problem. asterisk, we do. but I think it shows up in our sanctification. This is our struggle. Having begun by the Spirit, we now think we can be perfected by the flesh. Now it's somehow all up to you to get it done. And so what do we look at? How many times have you read your Bible this week? How many times have you prayed? Have you done enough? Have you talked to that person? They were going through a hard time and you forgot to call them. How are you handling your kids? That was a public scene you made. Wow, that was awful. Wow, you probably need to do better next time. Are your kids really eating balanced meals? The list goes endlessly on. How are we doing? Having been gunned by the Spirit, now we're being perfected by our flesh? Really? Paul says, not so fast. I love how he says, did you suffer so many things in vain? When you look at the cross, you see how much you lost in order to gain. What did we gain? Well, we gained everything, right? Righteousness, eternal life, peace with God, sonship. We've gained absolutely everything, but count the cost, we did lose a lot, didn't we? What did Paul lose? Can I, can I give you an example of what he lost? He points this out, Philippians 3. He tells you exactly what he had to give up in order to gain righteousness in Christ. Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we the we were the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have way more. Circumcised on the eighth day, check. Of the people of Israel, check. Of the tribe of Benjamin, check. Of Hebrew of Hebrews, check. As to the law, a Pharisee, check. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, check. As to righteousness under the law, check. Blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything, not just all my Jewishness, not, not only my religion, but now all my further everythingness. I count everything as loss. It's empty. I put, put, it on the, put it on the altar, Jesus. Everything you want, put it there. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, what kind of Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that only depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In other words, what Paul wasn't looking for was seven steps to be a better husband or a better tent maker. He wasn't sufficient for that. That wasn't worth throwing away everything else. That wasn't worth the throwing away everything in his life, religiously or irreligiously. What is, is on the last day, when Jesus returns and calls all saints to himself, are you going to be there? Are you going to have enough righteousness to show up? Is there going to be enough power at work in your heart to get to heaven on that day? When all is said and done, when justification and sanctification, when those uh, scales have been been set, are you going to show up? Paul says it was worth it to me to throw away everything that I might have Christ because it's through him that I have resurrection. And the only way to get in is mere faith, just simple trusting in him. So my friends, yes, we are justified by faith in Jesus, but this also empowers the realities of our sanctification. If we're ever going to get to the end, it's still only always going to be all about Jesus. It's going to depend on real transformation that's beyond the grave. That's actually transformative in the heart. Which is why he says, look down at verse 4, Did you suffer so many things in vain? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you work miracles among you by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What you needed is a miracle to get in. What you still need to stay in is a miracle. How did that happen? What only happens through the Spirit by hearing with faith. Verse 6, And he's going to throw in this little example. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted for him as righteousness. And that provides the rest, the theological portion of his argument there to the Galatian church. My friend, in your sanctification, what you need is a miracle. And it's already been done. He's not here. I had a good conversation with Corey Kick, who... Put me onto a theological podcast that i loved. it's called simply put uh, every little theological concept that they talk about is covered in like six minutes it's beautiful highly recommend it the reason he showed me that is because it kind of wrecked Corey's life when it came to this idea of sanctification so i'm going to share a little bit about it it's not my stuff it's barry cooper's stuff the guy who puts the, the podcast together but he says that sanctification is a time-traveling word in scripture why is it a time-traveling word because your sanctification has happened in the past Scripturally, biblically speaking, it's, ha- it's happening in the present. This is what we call progressive sanctification. It's happening in real time now, but it also happens in the future. There's a real sense to which you will never fully be sanctified until you reach heaven's gates. So from the past sanctification that you already have in Jesus, where Jesus has already rendered you holy, he has already sanctified you. This is why Paul calls the, the, the church in Corinthians saints. How does that happen? How does Paul call the worst church ever that you would never attend in your lifetime? How does he call them saints? Because of past sanctification that's rooted in justification. God has in Christ set them apart, sanctified them, made them holy already in the person and work of Jesus. God is at work currently through the Spirit, progressively sanctifying them, progressively setting them apart. How does that happen? Only by faith in Jesus, miraculously, not based on your performance, but based on Jesus' work in you to kill you and to make you alive. And my friends, the reality is you are yet to be sanctified. And one day God will set all things right, redeem all things, set you new with a fully sanctified body one day. And that will be a miracle. It's a time-traveling word But all of it is consistent with miraculous in Jesus. It needs faith and faith alone to do it. In other words, you can't do that. We can talk about participating in it. What do I think participating in your own death and resurrection look like? Well, I think it looks like submitting yourself to the law of God. Listening to it. Not letting yourself cheat out of it. Not wiggle yourself free from it. But actually hearing it being okay with being a big, fat sinner? Why? So that you might then hear the gospel, trust in it, go back to it. When you hear the preaching of Christ crucified, your ears of your heart tune up and say, that's my only hope in life and death. That's it. That I am his. That's it. That's all I've got. You actually begin to forget about your performance. We talked about in community group, this a uh, blessed freedom of self-forgetfulness where you're not living your Christian life in the realm of the self, where you're constantly so almost self-absorbed, thinking about how did I do today and how, 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 where it's so self-centered, but it's fixed in faith in Christ and then actually lives in the life of your neighbor because you're actually free at that moment. It's beautiful. It's how God wants us to live. God's work of justification is the key to God's work in sanctification. Christ crucified is not only how you get in, my friends, it's how you know you will stay in forever, regardless of your performance. And if you're worried, if you're curious, if you feel like you've lost assurance, then my friends, what you need to hear is the word outside of yourself that because of Jesus, it is finished for your sin. All of the things that that you can't forget in your own hearts, Jesus has fully remembered in his atonement for you. Not one of the sins that you have committed this week or beyond, your biggest sin, has all been covered in his work. He knows about it. He atoned for it. It really is finished for it. You need to go back and hear that every single week, every single moment where you're tempted to forget and think that somehow it's all about you. Don't be so foolish. Don't be put under the spell. The first step in living a sanctified life is giving up all hope in your ability to live a sanctified life in your own power. (laughs) The key to living a sanctified life is giving up hope in your ability to live a sanctified life on your own. To be able to raise your hand and say, if I'm going to live a sanctified life, it's going to depend on the righteousness of Jesus living through me, Christ himself. The very presence of the spirit of God in my heart to do things that I by myself cannot do. It's called a miracle. The key to sanctified living is not living under the burden of what you are able to do for God, but trusting in the rest of the miraculous graciousness of what God has done for us. So friends, my encouragement would be to you, don't be so foolish in living under the spell. Trust in the realities of Christ. It is finished. It is done. Just how you got in is the same way you're going to stay in. And he's going to be faithful to that forever. He's all of a sudden just not going to walk off the throne today. His blood is going to remain there for you your whole life, regardless of how sanctified or how justified you feel. It's still there and it still transforms. Continue to look to it. Let's pray. God, we are praising you tonight for... from the light.